Welcome to the Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 10-17-2021. And we're continuing where we left off with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, we have the thought of the week. There is no doubt that Abraham loved his first son, Ishmael. Sarah saw how his attention was divided, and Isaac did not get the attention he deserved as the promised son. She made a decision which seems a bit, a bit harsh as we read it. Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance which, with son Isaac. That's found in Genesis 21.10. Abraham was upset at the rift in his family. He loved his son Ishmael deeply. Would, what would I Abraham do? All his hopes and dreams were bound up in his son. He then heard from God, do not be distressed. Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to what Sarah tells you. Because it is though Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. That's found in Genesis 21:12. Sarah had the right idea, and God confirmed it. Abraham was not paying attention to God's plan. And now he had sent Hagar and his beloved son out of camp forever. God would take care of them, of course, but there was to be confusion over who was the chosen one. And there was to be no sharing of the inheritance God planned exclusively for Isaac. Isn't it interesting today that in, in Islamic circles, they have Ishmael, Ishmael as the promised son. Our adherence to God's plan for the church is just as important to him. We must pay special attention to the distinctions God has made, God makes for the church, and the exclusion of the Jewish influence. After all, it is God's plan and purpose for the church. It is not Israel. We are certainly, we will certainly never see the wisdom of God's plan if we constantly have an Ishmael before our eyes. I'd like to offer a short commentary. Um, I'm going to, you know, the uh, we've been studying in Romans chapter 9. We've studied uh, in Ephesians and the mystery, um, which is something that uh, the Jews, uh, since Pentecost, have rejected. But not only have the Jews and uh, the Jewish scholars rejected the mystery, uh, it seems that the church has overlooked it and, miss, and missed it. And I just want to say that um, this is a, a gem that uh, we're talking about the mystery from eternity past, 
that God designed for his, his the sons. And it just seems that it's also missing today in many Christian circles. So at this time, I would like to turn the service over to Dwight for prayer. Thank you very much, Fred. Um, are there any special requests? Well, Dwight, just, just to, for those who are sick among us and in pain at this hour. Okay. Yeah, I'd especially like to uh, uh, lift up my brother Michael, who's in the hospital at this time. That's right, yeah. Thank you, Fred. Okay. Okay. All right, thank you very much. We'll let us bow our heads as we come before the Father in prayer. Let us pray with all thanksgiving and supplication, and in spirit and in truth. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to come together to share your word as it has been given to us. Our eyes have been opened to the mystery, which is your eternal plan, uh, revealed ages ago. I mean, uh, not ages ago, <laughs> within the church age, but a long time ago. Um, with Paul's ministry to make it plain to all people uh, what is this mystery that has been revealed. Let us also have the same motivation with the people that we encounter, realizing that this is a matter of salvation, it's a matter of life and death, and that uh, focus on the eternal plan is a matter of growth, and there are rewards that Father has, our Father has for those things. Um, so may the eyes of our hearts be open to the inheritance we have in Christ, and may we always be mindful of and humble to the Father's eternal plan. Um, let us also pray uh, for those who are suffering uh, in the world and, and in the church, uh, whether it's physical diseases, uh, illnesses, disasters, financial problems, spiritual uh, warfare going on in, in the world today. Uh, help us to be mindful of those things and to uh, help um, participate in your plan to lead all people to salvation and to the full knowledge of the truth. In particular, I'd like to uh, pray for the sick among us. Um, I pray for all waters to church and for the world church worldwide, which is the body of Christ. And in particular, also, I want to lift up um, Michael. Michael Presley, and uh, who, is, who is currently in the hospital. And we know that there are many physical challenges, um, but this world is not our home. Um, we are citizens of heaven, but we are grateful for the time that you have given us uh, in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, um, Fred and uh, Dwight. We appreciate that. Uh, we are moving forward. Uh, we have notes. We are in verse uh, John sixteen thirty three, which is the last verse in John 16. So we have quite a few notes. We're going to get right to some of the things that are said here. Well, these verses, or this verse, I could say is classic in that... Um, I've heard it quoted many times, although I wish 
it were quoted more because uh, of what it actually says. And so we're going to get into it. Uh, so you have notes. What would we do without the Word of God? It is comforting to know that we have a Creator who wants to communicate with us. We have a Creator who has something to say to us. Many have overlooked the Word of God as a guide for life and do not see it as absolute truth. Of course, we have choices to make when it comes to believing the Word or not. We should be reminded that, quote, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly, for, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The Word of God has brought God into our view. We can understand God through his special miracle to all of us, his infallible Word. And we could say, without the Word of God, we don't know God. Uh, and we used to say those things to help people to focus on the Word. If you don't know the Word of God, then you don't know God. Because that is the only place He is revealed. Obviously, barring creation. But God has told us a lot more beyond creation. So let's get into this last verse, which I have told you these things. So that in me you may have peace, but in this world, but in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So the first phrase is, I have told you these things, and I, my my quirky way of thinking about it is, what things? A reminder for us to look at the immediate context. There is special revelation here even though the disciples did not fully appreciate it at the time. So why I say that is John 16, 12, and 13, because it says right here, uh, I have much more to say to you. So the fact that he had more to say to them meant that he had already told them some of what he had to say. I would say if he had much more to say, that means he only told them a small portion of what was to be told. Uh, so if, if he had 100% to tell them and he had much more to tell them, I would say he told them 10% maybe, not even, but it's maybe 2%. <laughs> and he had 98% to tell them. So when the Spirit comes, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, into all truth is a reference to the more of the revelation that Christ has to tell. And he will do so through the spirit of truth. And back to verse 12, more than you can now bear. In other words, they couldn't handle uh, the truth or the much more information that Jesus would have told them. They wouldn't be able to handle it. Why? Because it was dispensational in, in nature as well. It's not just about fact of who we are and what are what what are we and our the God's eternal purpose and all that it has to do with the fact that there's a new dispensation dawning that's huge um, and there would need to be 
a lot of directional understanding, uh, distinctions to, to, to understand the, the time in which we live. So the disciples could not handle that. In fact, they had enough to handle, didn't they? With the death, the burial, and the resurrection that was about to happen, and they still were unaware of that, as we have seen in the previous studies here. So we're going to dig in. So point, that was the first point, uh, I say what things, and that makes us focus on the context. You know, if you're not focused on the context, then you can't properly say what the writer is talking about. You have to be focused on the context. So point B, inside information was disclosed just before Christ went through death, burial, and resurrection and preparation for what was soon to come. So Christ was setting the stage. Of all the things to study, uh, this discourse, and we have been studying this discourse. Uh, We started in John chapter uh, 14, which took us to really go back and understand what brought about 14. So we had to delve into 13. But 14, 15, 16, and this is where we are. We're headed into 17. And this is the discourse that Jesus is talking about. Uh, Much more to tell you. Well, he already told them some things. And in those things that he told them, it was a lot. We learned about the spirit of truth. We learned about a new dispensation that's dawning, even though not in those words. Uh, there's going to be a, even if you go back to John 4, where Jesus says, there's going to be a time coming when we shall neither worship on this mountain, talking about what the Samaritans thought, or the, the uh, mountain of God, which is the uh, where the Jews worshiped. He says, uh, but the true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what we are doing right now. I'm not just saying that because I want to be a true worshiper. (laughs) I'm saying that because we're living in the time when God, the spirit of truth, is here. And if we're going to worship God at this juncture, it is through the means that God has provided. If we don't, and we can't expect that we're somehow worshiping God. We're bypassing what God has told us is the way that true worshipers will now worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And those are the ones he's called, right? We know the whole story. So point that's point B. Point C, we have, in, we have this information today because the spirit of truth has documented it for us in this age. And that's when we think about uh, Jesus said, I have told you these things. Right? We wouldn't even have known what these things were that he told us had the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't arranged for these things to be committed to writing. So not only did the spirit of truth come and testify, like Christ said, he will testify concerning me, he will glorify me. He did all of that. But more than that, it was chronicled, written for our growth and enlightenment. We have that. And John 14, 25 and 26 says so. It says, uh, says it like this. 
All this I have spoken while still with you. It's very similar to, I have told you these things. And then what does he come back with? But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, here, these last, this last phrase, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So it's almost the same. Verse 26 here is almost the same as what we have in John 16, 12, and 13. So John 16, 12 says, I have much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. So here he's saying the Holy Spirit, when he does come, he will uh, remind you of everything I have said to you, plus he's going to teach you all things. So he's already said John 16, 12, and 13. And, but now we have, in John 16, he says it in the even uh, a way that's even more descriptive of what he, he means. So that verse, uh, to me, is profound by looking at it. It, is, uh, it, is, it puts you on the edge of your seat with expectation about what God is going to do. And when this happens, when the Advocate, the Holy Spirit comes, I would think it is not just, okay, everything as usual, Everything's going to continue to go on. No, there's going to be much more information. And now we know of all of that much more that we now are living in. So let's keep going. Point D. We get many disclosures all the time when we are purchasing products or services. Here is a disclosure we should be sure to read. And when Jesus is telling you, I have much more to tell you, he's saying to disclose to you. And when you buy services and products, a lot of times they come with disclosures and they want you to, to read these things. So you can be aware of, you know, things that have to do with what you have purchased or the service that you, they are providing. They're saying up front, here's some disclosures. Well, this is a disclosure regarding the new age this whole discourse and <clears throat> when jesus says i have much more to tell you more than you can now bear i'm going to give you a full disclosure later but i'm going to give you a partial disclosure now we should read it and, and not only that the you know what happens afterwards in other words the holy spirit has come and we are in that much more age where that information is now available I'd say the church needs to make sure they go back and look at what Jesus said. They need to be reminded what Jesus said, just like it says uh, in our verse 14, 26. He will remind you of everything I have said to you. Because what Jesus has said to them is directional. It helps us understand which way this information should be interpreted and how you know, people are going to uh, take it and what they're supposed to do with it. What, where does it go? How does it fit? And, and Jesus gave that, some of that information in, uh, in his introduction of the mystery. And so we have, it, for instance, and I pointed out these things as we came, as we came to them and, and went in, along in the context, one of the terms here is the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit, one of the titles of his name is Spirit of Truth. But you would think 
today that he is not the spirit of truth. He is like the spirit of emotion. That That's what people think of when they think of God, the Holy Spirit today, unfortunately. Like when they are in worship and, you know, they just lift their hands and, you know, the tears are flowing and, uh, and they're just praising him. And now, first of all, is there anything wrong with that? No, but to associate that with God, the Holy Spirit, I say now we have crossed a line. All of that behavior and activity, is that talk about the spirit of truth? It sounds like there's, does that talk about the dissemination of the much more information? Certainly we could be uh, available to God and respond to God, you know, in thankfulness and praise. But don't confuse that with what Jesus was telling them directionally to be aware of, that this is coming. He's not saying emotion's coming. He's not saying the spirit of emotion. He's saying the spirit of truth. And he talked about he would guide us into all truth. Uh, that's just one point. But we have been talking about a lot of different ones as we have gone along in this context. So Jesus, when he says, I have told you these things, and point number two is so that in me you may have peace. So obviously they don't have this peace now. So if he says, I'm telling you this so that you can have peace, they didn't have peace. That's my point. Uh, but in this instruction is to prepare them for what is ahead. So he wants them to have this peace. And that's one of the things, uh, you know, obviously peace is going to be one of these words. We just need to fully understand what is meant by peace here in the context and as we will get to later in, in this section, that there are other uses of the word peace in Scripture. We'll get to what they mean and how, but let's just make sure we understand Jesus' point of view as he talks about peace. So, there are, so, so point B is what kind of peace is this? So there are three things that I pointed out here in the notes. Let's see. First, uh, what is this peace? What this peace is not. Right? That's what we want to see, what it is not. So uh, I'm going to go through John 16, going back to John 16. We're going to go quickly through these verses. Stay up with me now. 16, 1 through 4. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you, uh, when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So, obviously, by reading those four verses, they're tough to read. Uh, people might kill you because of your stance for. Uh, not only who I am, but the way of life that um, I'm saying. I got much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. Yeah, they're not going to handle it well, these people. They're going to throw you out of the synagogue. They're going to, all this, they may kill you. That doesn't sound like peace. Right? If a person says, I got peace for you, and then all of a sudden, he, the next, in the next breath, he's telling you, 
yeah, but there's going to be lots of trouble and you're going to be thrown out of synagogue. And when we think about the disciples, they were all martyred and persecuted. This is not something that we could say, yeah, and then they lived happily ever after. No, they were chased from town to town and, 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 and enemies and, and thrown in jail and prison. Some of them were saw, all kinds of different things happened to these people after Jesus left. Some of them died horrible deaths. And peace would not be a word that I use to describe what happened to the disciples. And then in Romans eleven twenty eight, there's more. Um, let's, I'll read that quickly. Eleven twenty eight says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, and we know who they is, he's talking about Israel here, are enemies for your sake. So get this, the Jews are enemies for the early church. And to show it is, I wouldn't say that this is lifted in any sense of the word, because the fact that we exist is a contradiction in the theology of uh, the, the Jew. We, he, we are here. Jesus came and he left. And I don't care what you do in your theology, you have turned your back on, on the one who came unto his own and his own did not receive him. So we are a thorn in their saddle, in their side. So however you want to look at it, it is not good. But on the other hand, it's not good for them. But what about us? Well, there are enemies. There are declared enemies. This is, I mean, they're the ones that put Christ on the cross. They're the ones that stoned Stephen and all, and the persecution that was, uh, you know, that, that came to the church, the early church, started with them. Uh, certainly the Gentiles and the Romans were not gracious toward us at all. But the Jews certainly are enemies. Not to say they're only enemies, but they're certainly enemies of, well, of God, but beloved on account of the gifts that are irrevocable. So just reading Romans 11 and seeing that they are enemies. I mean, look at that. I mean, just let that soak in, that the enemies that are out there uh, it does not mean that you will have peace and, and, and that means a lack of, of fighting or no more wars or no enemies. No, this is peace in the midst of enemies. This is peace where enemies are attacking and against you. So when we, we're trying to understand what peace is, what kind of peace is this? It is not the absence of war or, uh, or, or of that we have made peace with all our enemies. Now they're not our enemies. They're our allies now. That's not the kind of peace Jesus is talking about. We already read how uh, it's going to be trouble, right? And then John 16, 33, we already know. The very verse we're in says it this way. I'm going to turn to it, which is really, we're coming to that, but I have told you these things so that in me you, ha you may have peace. Now, here it is. In the world, you will have trouble. So, but notice where the peace exists. In me, Christ says. 
He says, in me you will have peace. Yeah. It's not in the world. So I just want to dispel any, you know, type of peace that people might have, which is calm and tranquil life, you know, a life where you just, everybody is, you know, your friend and, and gracious towards you. And, and no, it's, it is a life of turmoil because you're in this world and the world hates you. So Jesus said at the same time, he says, yeah, you're going to have peace. I'm giving you this peace, but notice in the world, you're going to have trouble. It's a lot of trouble. So point number two in our under B, what kind of peace is the peace we have is different from the world's peace. That's John 14, 27. Um, let's see what that one says. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So this last phrase, do not let your hearts be troubled or do not be afraid. Look, all these things are getting ready to happen to you. It's not going to be calm, tranquil, peaceful, like the world thinks. It's something else. But the peace that we have is calm and tranquil and uh, because of what we have in Christ. So we're going to get to what it is. And point number three kind of describes that. So we know it's not the same kind of peace as the world. That was the first thought. Make sure you dispel. When we talk, when he talks about he's going to give us peace, it is not what the world gives. It is not how the world sees peace. Point number three, my peace I give to you. Now that comes from John 14, 27 as well. So it says Jesus did not have uh, peace because there was calm and no turmoil in his life. Because now Jesus is saying, my peace I give to you. I give you. So what, what kind of peace did Jesus have? It certainly was, wasn't as a result of no turmoil in his life. It was in the midst of turmoil. Everywhere Jesus went, not only was he healing the sick and all that, but the Pharisees were constantly uh, setting traps for him, plotting against him, trying to discredit him, constantly sending people throwing questions out to try to trip him up. I mean, all of that was going on at the time Christ uh, walked the earth. And then uh, here's an illustration of the kind of peace Christ has. And you, you don't even see the principalities and powers and the spiritual side of the attacks, like the fact that Christ was taken up and t tempted, uh, tested by the devil. We saw that in Luke chapter 3 or 4, I think it was. But notice that Christ wasn't, there, was, there were other attacks beyond what we could see in physically speaking. And we're going to get to that as well. So in Mark 4, Mark chapter 4 is an illustration of what we're talking about here, of this piece. Verse 35 through 41. So I'll begin. The day when, that day when evening came, his disciples, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now notice, uh, whose command was it for them to go over to the other side? It is literally the command of Christ. Christ wanted them to go over to the other side. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along 
just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So um, the, the stern is like the back of the boat, just so everybody knows. Right? So he was in the back of the boat, right, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? So they didn't say, Teacher, can you help us row? Uh, could you help us, you know, you know, with the sails? Or, you know, we're, we're getting ready to go down. No, they, said, they just jumped to, don't you care if we drown? In other words, we are going to die. And are you concerned that we are going to die? Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, this is him, he gets up, and he looks out and sees the storm, the tumultuous storm, and he says, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In another verse, it says, What manner of man is this? Who is this? What kind of person? Who, even the wind and waves obey him? Now, that is literally uh, something that does not happen. We do not have power over the wind and the storms and all of that. You could say, quiet, be still all you want. You could say, in Jesus' name, quiet, be still. And none of that's going to happen. That's, you will not be able to do that. But Jesus was able to say, quiet. To He spoke to the wind and the waves and the sea, and he said, quiet, and it was calm. Now, the disciples saw that and they were beside themselves. They, wow, they realized, wow, look. And then what is Jesus saying? Look, you, you have little faith. I'm the one that told you to go to the other side. And he went and fell asleep in the back of the boat. And so they lost touch with the command of God. And it's just an illustration. So what we are to understand here is it leads to point C here. The ingredients of peace. Ingredients for peace. One is knowing the Father's will. So if, if you don't know what's going on, right, you're going to look at everything that's happening to you in your life as just it just happens. It may be bad luck or uh, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time or, you know, it's just woe is me. And that is, if you understand why you're here in this world, that means you, you have to know the Father's will. You have to know what God is doing down here. What is the call? What, what does he want you to do down here? That's important to know. You can't just not know and have the kind of peace that Jesus has. And then point number two is walking in the Father's will. So it's not just knowing it, but once you begin to order your life and your steps around the Father's purposes, that means not only do you know what it is, but you agree to uh, that that's what it is in your soul, right? 
you, you have humility toward the Father. And you want to walk according to His plan, His purposes for your life. So that's a different step. Just knowing it does not mean that you've made decisions to believe it and to trust it. It's almost like you know the way of salvation, but you haven't trusted Christ for your soul's salvation. Yeah, I know He's the Savior of the world. I know He died for my sins. I know He rose from the dead. But have I trusted the matter of my soul's salvation to Christ? That's a different step. And if I had done that, then I could cease from my own works. I don't have to keep trying to work for my salvation if I know that Christ did all the work necessary to save me. So in the same way, when it comes to walking and doing God's will, listen, the disciples could know that if they're going to persecute them, they're going to kick them out of the synagogue, Those they're going to think they're doing God's service and they're going to kill them even. But they can know and have the confidence and the calm of an assurance of knowing that uh, this is the Father's will. And he told them as much that this would happen. So that's, this is where we are with when we think about the calm. And then, so, so point, that's, that leads us to point number three. Calm assurance that we are doing the will of the Father, often associated with joy and love. So this is... Um, there are other words to describe what happens. We've already looked at joy. So uh, joy could be, could be the positive side of the exuberance that God gives us for, because we are walking in his will. But then peace is the calm and the confidence and the assurance that we are doing what God wants us to do. We are walking in the path that he has laid out for us, that we are fulfilling the plan uh, and the purpose for our lives. And part of that is our niche, right? We are oriented because we, we now know what we were created for. We're doing the very things that we are created to do. And that gives us sort of a confidence, a, a grounding, a settling of our souls, that we understand what our purpose is. And we, we are pursuing that purpose. And it not only does it give us great gratification, but great confidence and calm assurance as well. So, so that's th three things, right? Three things about peace. One was, um, let's just rehearse them, knowing the Father's will. If you don't know what the mystery is and all that, how can you act accordingly? You can't. How can you have peace regarding it when turmoil in the world seems to contradict what may be your worldview. So you have to know the Father's plan. You have to understand, well, if your hope is in this world, let's just say, let's throw, it out, throw that out there, then, and you see things happening in this world that are eroding that hope that you have in this world, then you're going to, eventually, your hopes are going to be dashed, your faith is going to be silenced. But we have... They're understanding that this world is going to come to an end. It's going to get worse and worse. And it's going to wear out like a garment. And people, you know, have to understand, as far as Christians, that is, that that is the norm. God is saying, he warned us, he told us these things. So why, we have peace about him because we, we understand. We don't get upset, worried, afraid of what's going to happen next and all of that. Because we understand that the world is on decline, 
it's deteriorating. So peace, um, then the next thought was, point number uh, two was walking in the Father's will, literally doing, doing it, right? Ordering our steps according to uh, the priorities and that we have set as far as the Father's plan. Understanding, I like what Paul says, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, or to, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, or to make plain to everyone. All of that is Paul's resolve to walk in the Father's will, no matter what opposition of this world. And you might look at Paul's life and say, man, it was tumultuous. Man, Paul had a lot of scars from the beatings that he took and different things going on. But Paul had peace. There was a peace, a calm, assurance, and, you know, steadfastness with respect to teaching and bringing people to maturity. And all of that was important to him inside. So the peace that we are seeing happens on the inside in Christ. Point number three, so that... Uh, but not point number three is number three in the three ingredients where it also is associated with love and joy. You see the commitment to the Father's plan in love. You see the motivation of the direction of our steps toward the Father's plan when we speak of love. And when we speak of joy, we're saying that, hey, no matter what happens, there is this exuberance, this this the joy of God, knowing that we're fulfilling God's purposes, walking in his ways. Like it says, Christ says, for the joy that was set before him, he despised the cross and scorning its shame and, and it sat down at the right hand of God. And joy took him through that as well. He understood, even in the midst of the suffering of the cross, where the sins of the world were, were poured out on him. So those ingredients for sure. Point D, let's keep moving because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Peace is not cheap. It comes with a price. It comes at a price. So in Ephesians, we can see Ephesians chapter 2. I hope that's what I have. Yeah. 14 through 17. For this reason... Uh-oh. I got three here. Hold on. Ephesians 2. 14. For he himself is our peace. Who's our peace? Christ. Christ Jesus. He is our peace. Now, you could say, you know, I've heard somebody say um, that they resist if somebody would do something. They say, I'll, I'll do something. And they will say, well, over my dead body, you'll do it. In other words, you will not do, you will have to go over my body and I will fight you to the death before you do that. That's literally what they're saying. It's sort of a metaphor. <laughs> they don't really mean it. But Christ did it. It was because of his body, which was given for us, that we have grace and we have eternal life and we have this new life in Christ that we have. It is through the body of Christ. In other words, through the suffering and all that he went through and his death that we now have life. So it is, this is something that we say is not cheap. It comes at a price. I'll continue to read in, in 14, where he says, For he himself is our, is our peace who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And boy, 
was it hostile? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Now, of course, the fact that we are in Christ and we have peace, and he's talking about here the peace between Jews and Gentiles. There was hostility there, but at a price, it was made peace. So then he says, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. So uh, it's just another analogy, a way that uh, peace is used in scripture. Uh, peace comes at a price. And then continuing on, Point E is other uses of peace and scripture. One is reconciliation. So Christ, uh, we are reconciled to God through the body of Christ. Right? This is, we, I guess we just talked about this uh, in some ways in, in point D. But in another way, generally speaking, we know, we note that Christ's death on the cross is the propitiation for everyone in the world. And not for just our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So we recognize that peace can be used in the sense between, uh, there's two warring parties, uh, like we said in the previous verse, like with Jews and Gentiles. Well, the two warring parties are God the Father and all humanity. God loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son, right? Uh, in order that we might be have eternal life. So Christ is used as our peace. God used him. He set him apart as peace. So um, we, could, we could see it that way as reconciliation. And Christ is the one who uh, was a ransom for our sins. That's uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It's, it's a good way to look at it there. Um, so also, you will see peace as used in Scripture as a greeting. Uh, grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we who understand peace would want to perpetuate um, the benefits of peace because it speaks of the attitude and character that we have in this age. So we would want to perpetuate that by even using it as a greeting. So you could say, oh, it's just a greeting. But in, in other words, we could say it continues to talk about what we're about. That's important. Uh, so grace and peace to you. You will find many scriptures that talk about peace in terms of a greeting as well. We're moving forward. Uh, to point number three, so, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. So um, what about this phrase, in this world, you will have trouble. So Jesus said it best, just a sec. This is what Jesus said, and this is in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. I have it quoted here. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. 
as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I can't say it any better than what Jesus said in these two verses. He basically is showing you the root cause of the hatred that the world has for you. So um, that leads us to point B. Um, there are classic verses. That's one of them, but there are more. I'm going to point out in 1 John 2. But classic verses on the world and its ruler, who is the arch enemy. That, and we know who that is. <clears throat> That's Satan. The prince of this world, the god of this world, small g. Right? These, that's who rules over this world. So certainly, Jesus says, if the world hates you, just keep in mind they hated me first. So Satan hates Christ. Not only for the reason that he runs this world, but for the reason that Christ will one day supersede him as the ruler of this world. He will take Satan and uh, he will destroy <clears throat> the power of Satan over this world. And he will resume, or I should say, take the reins uh, of this world. That's coming. That's another reason why, why Satan hates Christ. It's because he knows that he's going to supersede him as the ruler of this world. And um, so... We already read Jesus' thought there. The world hated Christ. That's why it's going to hate you. Right? If, if, you do, if you do not belong to the world uh, because I've chosen you out of the world. We don't. This is not our home. Even though you may feel comfortable down here, that comfort is short-lived. Because the more you uh, are live godly as it's as the scripture says, in Christ you will suffer persecution. That persecution is going to come from the world and those who are in it. Primarily, it's going to come from the ruler of this world, Satan. He hates you. You may try to blend in down here, but eventually, if you're a believer, then the world's going to hate you. It may not bother you as much because you, you kind of have sold out to, to the world in certain areas, but in reality, the world knows who you are. And even if you try to blend in, it will manipulate you and you will not be fulfilling your purpose and you will not have that joy and that peace that we talked about. So classic, these are classic verses that most people know and uh, are, I don't think are quoted enough. Even though they're classic, they need to be quoted even more. So, uh, so John, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 uh, is the classic verse, another classic verse about the world. I guess if we're going to talk about we'll have trouble in this world, we need to make sure we read 1 John chapter 2 and these verses 15 through 17. Here it is. <clears throat> Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, the love here we talked about, which is the proper motivation we have in the spiritual life, should not be directed to the world or anything in the world. Why? We already know that this world is going to pass away. We know it. 
we know that it's going to wear out. This is temporary. It is like the Mosaic Law, right? It was, it was meant to be transitory or temporary. And uh, unfortunately, the Jews want to perpetuate that which is temporary. And, and therein lies the problem of the veil that remains over them every time the Mosaic Law is read. So anyway, I'm, I'm diving off here on love. But we are not to direct our love, which should be our commitment, our motivation, right? Where we de decide to set up our values and all of that. We should not be directing our motivation toward the world or anything in the world. Love, if you do, if anyone loves the world, what will happen? Love for the Father is not in them. Well, loving the world means perpetuating, honoring the, the pursuits, the motivations that are in the world, all that. Guess what? It's Those are... Uh, mutually exclusive to the love of the Father. Now that's hard for people to, to grasp because people live in this world and they love a lot of things. But just know, I can understand you can be for or against things, sure, but you are not to love the things in this world. Right? That, that your love is, your, in other words, the proper motivation that you have should be toward the Father's plan. That's what you should, I mean, as a believer. Now, of course, people are going to be all over the place in the spectrum of things about what they love and what they don't. That's up to the individual. It has nothing to do with salvation. We should know that. But it will matter when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ when when God is able to evaluate each believer on how they functioned while in the body. And there will be rewards for those, and there will not be rewards for others. We should know that those are the consequences. I know a lot of people will jump to, well, if you don't, if you love the world, then that means you're, uh, you don't have salvation. But that's not a condition of salvation to stop loving the world. That's a condition for those who want to grow in grace and have the proper motivation directed toward God. Uh, verse 16, for everything in the world, and here it is, the lust of the flesh. In other words, what makes us feel good from the flesh, the standpoint which satisfies the sin nature. Flesh here is a synonym for sin nature, right? The lust of the eyes, what we see, right? We can, we can, uh, we can covet things that we want, right? When we see things, we covet them. And this also has a sexual nature and the pride of life. And this is where we feel that we are on top of life and we have a right to live our life the way we want. And we have, uh, you know, we can boast before God of who we are. Uh, all of this comes not from the Father, but from the world. Right? So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three things come from the world, not from the Father. Right? And the Father's plan is something totally different about who we are. It does not have to do with the world. And here it is in verse 17. One of the reasons why you don't want to worship the world is the world and its desires pass away. In other words, they, they're temporary. They're not going to be here forever. We, we talked about what the Father, in the Father's plan, we understand 
that the world is temporary, and we act accordingly. We are not like those who think the world's going to be here forever. Right? They mock God. They say, where is the coming of the Lord? You said it was going to happen. It's been many ages, and you know, those they are mocking God, saying, yeah, the word of God is not true. Well, God is saying, yeah, that time will come. And elements will melt with fervent heat. And everything in this whole world will be burned up. There won't be left anything left. God is saying, that's coming to this world. We know that. In fact, that's what Peter says. You who know this, shouldn't you live in a manner with that understanding? So, so the world and, and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God abides, lives forever. You won't live in this world. We have eternal life, and our life and our motivations are continued, right? Even though, so we're not talking about, there are going to be people who wake up one day and realize, well, they already know the moment they close their eyes in death, but they're going to realize that they lived a life that was futile, right? that did not glorify God the Father. But salvation is not by whosoever lives a life uh, you know, it, ha it has to do with grace. But there are choices to make after salvation. And this is what we're talking about here. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, that motivation, those things that you've learned, the growth that you've had, you will be rewarded. And those things continue on forever. We have eternal rewards as a result of our doing the will of God. That's important. All right, let's get back to our notes. All right, so um, so Jesus, we already went through a point A. That was point B, classic verses on this world and its ruler who is our arch enemy. And then point C, our calling separates us from this world. Right? They are, and here, here's the quote. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. John 17, 16. Literally. <laughs> that's what Jesus says. Uh, our, ver our church is founded on John 17, 17, which is the next verse. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Well, this is 16, which says they, he's talking about the disciples, are not of, of the world, even as I am not of it. So the calling that we have, that calling separates us from this world. Positionally, we are no longer a part of what goes on down here. And I know, I know we're very concerned about what goes on because we live here, right? We have to live and, and God gives us opportunity to live and make a, uh, make a way for ourselves. And he, he provides a job so we could go work that job and we can live in the world. We could be his witnesses. All of that is part of living in this world. But it doesn't mean that they have our full attention. Right? So we, we are not of this world. I know there's another verse that talks about us being pilgrims and strangers. That's in Philippians 3. We are pilgrims. We're, we're here, but this is not our home. We are from, we are from somewhere else. That's important to note. So in this world, we'll have trouble but because we're not a part of it. We're not of it. Point D, Jesus is, well, before we go to point D, just remember, Israel is a part of this world. Not only that, God has granted them land 
They belong down here. We don't belong down here. Let's go on to point D. Jesus is going to the Father's house, which is the third heaven, to prepare a place for us. That's John 14, 2 and 3. He says it this way. Uh, remember, this is at the beginning of our discourse. We began here. John 14, 2 and 3. The Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So here you have, <clears throat> Jesus is saying here in point D, that he's preparing a place in the third heaven for us. We're talking about where we belong. I just said we didn't belong down here. We're not of this world. But where is our inheritance? Where, where do we belong? We belong in the third heaven. This is a place Jesus is preparing for us. And then point three, uh, or it's not point three, point E. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with by human hands. And that's 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Now just note, this is if we... This we depart this earthly tent. In other words, the earthly tent is your physical body, right? If it's destroyed, and I, and the context here is through persecution, uh, but in any way that the physical body is not able to sustain your life anymore here in this world. Well, what what about that? We have a building from God, right? We have a habitation of God. And it's an eternal house in heaven. This an eternal house or home in heaven is where we belong. It's where we fit in, not built by human hands. So even in the face of persecution, we're supposed to know that. We're supposed to understand that, that that's where we belong. Right? And so that's 2 Corinthians 5, 1. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 is a very familiar passage that uh, we've read many times. So here it is, 4, 16 through 18 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Notice where he comes from. The Lord himself, where is he? I am going there to prepare a place for you. Where is he coming from? He will come down from heaven. That's where he is with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with, the, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so he will take us back to heaven. It doesn't say that here, but, but that is the point. We have a home there. He's going there to prepare a place for us. And so... We will be with the Lord forever. Often these verses are read at funerals. Why? Because we are to comfort, encourage one another with these words. This is a mindset that is being created. Right? It's a perspective that we have <clears throat> when we are living in this world. This engenders peace in us. Helps us understand our destiny, what's going to happen. 
well, if we're just, if this body is destroyed, if there's persecution, if people are against us, if the world hates us, all of those things um, we can know and be calm and have assurance because we know what God is doing. We know what he's going to do with us. We don't have to worry. We don't have to have fear. We don't have to have anxiety around these things. And then point number four, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. These are some of the ways it is translated. Be of good cheer. Cheer up. Have courage. So the disciples should have this attitude in facing the troubles of this world. I say should because not all people will have it. Some people won't be of good cheer. Some people won't take courage. Right? They're going to be downcast through the whole sojourn of this world. They, they, you look at their faces and the strain and the struggle and the, 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 what's going on? How you doing? Oh, I'm tired. I could see, you could see it in the lines on their face because they don't have the inward peace that Christ has. He says, in me you have peace. But they have opted to have and shoulder the troubles of this world. Could be that they have unrealistic expectations of this world. And as they are dashed, so is their hope and their confidence. So uh, none of that should be us. We should always, that's why I said these verses are not read enough, even though they're supposed to be classic. And this, this peace that we have, that is not pursued enough because people are not pursuing it. And as a result, they fail. Point B, stay positive. I don't mean like positive thinking here. I know a lot of people, you know, like oh, if you're pot whatever is negative, you just turn that around and say say the opposite, and then things will go. You'll always have the brighter side of life. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Uh, I mean, be mission oriented. That's being positive. Mission regarding the world hatred and our outlook about our role here. That's what I mean by stay positive. So. You know what you're doing. You know what God has placed you here. And you know that you're walking in the footsteps of Christ. Christ went through the same thing that you are going through. In fact, he says, if anyone will come after me, let them take up their cross and follow me. And what did Christ do here in point number C? He says, I have overcome the world. Right? That's, take heart. In other words, I did the hard work. I did the heavy lifting for you. I have overcome the world. And there's a couple verses that we should note in this regard. Colossians 2, 15 through 16 is the first one. Um, let's look at it. 15 says, this is the part that we don't see necessarily about what Christ did. There was two sides. There was the physical side, things that people could see, and then there was the spiritual side, all of which we are privy to because of the spirit of truth has, has allowed us to, uh, has revealed these things to us. 15 says, and having disarmed, this is regarding nailing it to his cross, and then having 
disarm the powers and authorities. That's the angels. He disarmed them. He took away their power. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So there was another victory. So you would look at the cross and think, wow, he was, Christ was defeated. He died. But Christ triumphed over them by the cross. And what over who? The Romans? The Jews? No. I mean, yes, he did triumph over them. But here it's talking about the evil angels. And we should know the evil angels and Satan uh, were the ones who prompted those pawns, the Jews, the Romans, all those, to put Christ on the cross. Right? It wasn't Satan directly who put Christ on the cross, but it was Satan in all of those, his will, his way, in all of those pawns, those people who were there that put Christ on the cross. Yeah. And then, so, so then it says, therefore, do not judge anyone. Don't, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Or if you look at the Greek, it just says, or a holy day. Sabbath was a holy day. Nobody can judge you about that because we're not of this world. It's None of those things are about who we are. Those were things that the people who are of this world had to deal with. What does it say? They, these are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So these things don't speak of who we are at all. So, so then, um, what else do we have? There's a verse in Acts here. Uh, Acts chapter 2. So let's read that. Acts chapter 2. I know we're coming close to our time. We're getting there, though. 29 through 37, we, we may skim this. Uh, so this is Peter's speech after, on the day of Pentecost. One of the, we would have to read the whole speech, which you could do. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of death, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? 
In other words, we are the ones who crucified him. We're the ones that were probably in the crowd talking about crucify him, crucify him. <laughs> anyway, Christ won. He overcame. And it was even prophesied, the fact that he would, he would be resurrected and he, that there would be a king, that he would take the reins of this world and so forth. Point D, we share in his triumphant victory. First uh, John, you could read these verses. Uh, these are not new things, we, we have, but they are things that the verse speaks of. First John chapter 2, let's look at that. Uh, 4 and 5. Wait a minute. Uh, 2, 15 and 16, I'm sorry. 2, 15 and 16 says, is that right? Um, no, there's something wrong here. First John chapter 2, oh, 4 and 5. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands a liar. But No, that's... Uh, I think I got a wrong verse here. No worries. We'll skip on to John 4, 4. 1 John 4, 4. says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because, here it is, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. One who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Actually, the verse that I gave earlier should have been 1 John chapter 5. I'm correcting it in my notes. 1 John chapter 5, 4 and 5. I'll read it. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world. What is it? Our, it's even our faith. Who is it? That overcomes the world, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So by faith, by trusting in Christ, his victory becomes your victory. We are identified with what he has accomplished. Right? If he's a winner, we're a winner. If he's a victor, we're a victor. He has overcome the world. How do we do it? It's even it is by our faith. And then it's first Corinthians 15. We're coming to a close here. 1 Corinthians 15, part of these verses um, speak of the resurrection, but that is part of the victory. But here it is, 57. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. How is it? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we know we're, we're working, but we're working out the victory. We're not working to get the victory. We already have the victory through Jesus Christ. So we can experientially have the victory as well. And then uh, point E, Jesus, our conquering victor. I want to just read Revelation 19. We might as well read it. Because we want to see where Jesus actually takes the victory. Revelation 19, and we'll just read 11 through 20. says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. 
and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in, the, in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty and the mighty of horses and their riders, of the flesh of people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the king, kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into, fire, into the fiery lake burning of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So, and then 21 through 3, just so you know what also happens. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So why, the reason I'm reading all of this is because now you are seeing the transition. It is not a peaceful transition. It is a one that is uh, war and turmoil and trouble and of conquering um, that we have read in uh, these verses. So you have seen the, trans the, the transition of Satan's kingdom, and now you are seeing Christ's kingdom come into, into four. So what we should understand from all of this is Jesus has overcome the world. No matter what happens in this world, we should know and have this calm assurance, this peace that, that we have within us, that none of this can separate us from what Christ has done. And that's the last point, which is F, is just Romans eight thirty-five through 39. So it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all, this, all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're going to close with those words. Let's bow our head. Thank you, Father. You have given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens in this world, Father, we, we know who we belong to. We know what our mission is down here. And we have fully accepted your plan, Father. We pray that believers everywhere will be of the same mind. That they will know us, Father, by the love that we have. So we thank you, Father, for instilling that in us. And not only that, but choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We are grateful to be in your presence and to be those who are the objects of your love. We, we, we pray for this church, uh, that we will continue to develop these things more and more as we go forward. And we thank you for the richness of the chapters that we have had, uh, where there has been great instruction. And as we turn to uh, the prayer of uh, our Lord, we're going to recognize all of the instruction. We're going to take all of that with us as we go into uh, the last chapter 17. So we thank you, Father, for preserving your word for us so that we can continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.